Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as a collection of sinners who have, through our sins and our conscious rebellion against you, instituted obstacles and a chasm between us and you, how we thank you that in grace and in mercy and love you have sent your Son, born of a virgin, to be our Savior. We thank you also, Lord, for the Bible that you have given to us your own self-disclosure, that you have revealed yourselves to man. As we come before it now, we pray, Father, we would bring ourselves under it, as it were, to receive your word, to see what you have revealed in it concerning the person and work of your own dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please minister to us now through preaching. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles again, or you could utilize your bulletins if you'd like. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. As we continue in our series of sermons through Matthew's gospel, this is the third sermon in this series. I hope this morning to consider this chapter in its entirety. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. When the revered Oxford New Testament scholar and commentator R.T. France attempted to summarize the gospel of Matthew in one word, He selected the word fulfillment, fulfillment. Of course, when France speaks of fulfillment, in Matthew's gospel, he is speaking of the manifold ways in which Jesus is understood to fulfill the expectations of the Old Testament concerning Israel's coming Messiah. That's the fulfillment he's talking about. We may note a number of significant facts that lend credence to France's summary of the gospel in that word fulfillment. First of all, Matthew is by far the most Jewish of the four gospels. Matthew is, of course, himself a Jew. He is a disciple, was a disciple of the Lord, and he is writing, we believe, to a predominantly Jewish audience who would have been to some degree familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, Secondly, the gospel of Matthew contains no less than 54 direct citations of the Old Testament. That's more than two per chapter. Direct citations of the Old Testament, right around two per chapter, I should say. Uh, And France himself estimates that in addition to those direct references to the Old Testament, uh, there are about 250 allusions to the Old Testament. And France thinks that's actually a conservative figure. Number three, Matthew repeatedly uses the Greek word plerao, which is translated fulfill. He does so about 15 times, specifically in reference to Jesus fulfilling, plerao, fulfilling something that was prophesied or anticipated in the Old Testament. So repeatedly, you even heard this in Matthew 2, we read uh, lines like, this was to fulfill what was spoken, or such and such happened in order to fulfill what was said by prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah. At number four, Matthew takes pains to link Jesus with many of the most visible and esteemed figures of the Old Testament. We've already seen some of these. We'll see them throughout the book, figures like Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David and many others. All of these facts would tend to support France's idea that the theme of Matthew's gospel is Jesus as the culmination and fulfillment, that's the key word, fulfillment, of Old Testament expectation. Now, my interest this morning in this sermon, even in the series, is not primarily in vindicating Francis' summary of the gospel, though I think there's much to commend it. I think he's on the right track. 
But I do wish to note this idea of fulfillment is especially prominent in the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel. What is Matthew doing here at the outset of his gospel? We've had two sermons considering Matthew chapter 1. We'll consider Matthew chapter 2 this morning. What's he trying to do at the start of his gospel? He's trying to establish in no uncertain terms that Jesus, this Jesus, who we'll see is from Nazareth, we'll get him to Nazareth in this sermon in Matthew 2, uh, this Jesus is the longed-for Christ that the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures anticipated Him. He is the climax. He is the goal. He is the aim to which all the Old Testament is sort of moving uh, and searching for. And no section of this gospel in Matthew will highlight more emphatically this idea than these first two chapters. In fact, I think a fitting title we could give to chapters 1 and 2 would be the presentation of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We're going to see this in four direct uh, fulfillment ideas in Matthew 2 this morning. We saw this in chapter 1, though, didn't we? Uh, Chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, focuses on uh, the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew, what he's trying to do in that genealogy is firmly place Jesus within the bloodline of Abraham, within the bloodline of David. If you're familiar with those figures, you know how much Abraham and David and the promises made to them uh, uh, created expectation and anticipation for the coming of the Christ. We saw last week in verses 18 through 20, uh, Matthew framed Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament's expectation of a Savior. Jesus is His name, for He will save His people from their sins. He is the true and better Yeshua, the true and better Joshua, the true and better Jesus who will save His people, and not from just physical captivity, or bring them into the land, He will save them from their sins, and thus save them from everything else besides. Now in chapter 2, we have something similar, Matthew doing a similar thing, but it's a little different. In this chapter, Matthew gives us insight into Jesus' first days as a small child, and some of the events surrounding His early life. We get more on Matthew's first days as a small child, excuse me, Jesus' first days as a small child in Matthew than any other gospel. But I want you to notice this morning how often Matthew takes pains to emphasize in chapter 2 that each of these events of Jesus' life are in some way connected to what was anticipated or foretold specifically by the Old Testament Scriptures. So here's what I'd like us to do this morning. Let's review this narrative, Matthew 2, 1 through 23, under four main heads. That will take most of our time this morning. And then in the final minutes of the message, I hope to bring out three lessons for us. So four scenes here that I think uh, can shape our consideration of Matthew 1, 2, 1 through 23, and then we'll consider three lessons. All right, scene number one, first scene in Matthew chapter 2, and we'll spend more time here than any of the other three. Scene one, the wise men seek Jesus. That's the title I'm giving it. Maybe that's the title even in your Bible. I didn't bother to check in my own uh, copy of the ESV. The wise men seek Jesus. That's scene number one in Matthew chapter 2. This account is only recorded in Matthew's gospel. Uh, This is the only gospel that will record these wise men who come from the east to seek Jesus. In this first scene, verses 1 through 12, we have the wise men from the east who come in search of he who has been born king of the Jews. Now this, I trust, is a familiar account to many people here. Even if you're not a Christian, it might be a familiar account to you. It's aided in its familiarity by nativity scenes. You'll see those even around Winston-Salem around Christmas time. Aided also by Christmas carols. That make reference to the Magi or the wise men. You might think of the song, We Three Kings, uh, that is a, a recounting of 
uh, this passage. It's not an especially accurate recounting of this passage, but it is a recounting of this passage nonetheless. As we'll see in a moment, both the nativity scenes and the carols aren't always uh, exactly accurate according to the Word of God. But nonetheless, they serve to give this account of the wise men a little more prominence in our thinking about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Uh, as we read these verses, verses 1 through 12, we're confronted with a number of questions, uh, questions for which few solid answers are to be found. Uh, so I have more questions than answers as I approach Matthew chapter 2. First of all, we might ask how many wise men were there? And uh, some child here familiar with Christmas lore and songs might say, oh, there were three, duh, aren't you a pastor, didn't you go to seminary? There's three wise men, there's three kings, right? Well, there is actually no reason textually to think that. So we're not told how many wise men there were. The reason uh, uh, traditionally people have thought there might have been three is because three gifts were given to the king, uh, the newborn king of Israel, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and so maybe they think each each you know, wise man uh, brought one of these gifts. Uh, but there might have been a dozen or a couple of dozen. There might have been five or six. There might have been three. Uh, there's at least two. It's in the plural. Uh, there were multiple wise men who came. So we don't know exactly how many there were. Second, we might wish to know who these men were. What can we learn about them? And the fact of the matter is we know almost nothing about them. Uh, they are mysterious figures. Uh, they are likely pagans, uh, from somewhere east of Jerusalem. Some speculate they were perhaps from somewhere in Persia or Babylonia. Uh, they are, of course, not Jews themselves. Uh, some speculate that they were perhaps ancient astrologers. The word is magos. Uh, uh, plur would be magi, you know, the gift of the magi. It's a hard word to translate. Uh, and so many translations just translate it wise men. They were kind of seen as uh, seers and people had insight into spiritual matters or religious matters, and, and they're reading the stars apparently and have insight into the patterns of the stars because it is a star that leads them to Jerusalem. We don't really know exactly, though, who they were. But I think we can assume that perhaps, in fact, probably, they were familiar to some degree with the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, maybe they were well-versed in the sacred texts and teachings of various religions. Maybe there was just an interest that they had as magi, as these wise men. And maybe they had a special interest in Judaism in particular. I say they must have been familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures because they seem to know and understand that according to the Old Testament, there was to come a figure at some point, a faded one, who would be the king of the Jews. And even though Herod, of course, they know is the present king of the Jews, they seem to know he's not this figure to come. So, I mean, in some sense, Herod is the king of the Jews, but no, there's this coming king that the Old Testament Scriptures prophesied, said would come, and we're looking for that one. And it's, it's interesting, they have a kind of boldness to say that even to Herod, who is the ostensible king of the Jews. Hey, where's the real king of the Jews? The one that was foretold in the Old Testament Scriptures. The wise men seem to understand the Old Testament prophecies to some degree. They seem to understand something of who the Christ would be. They knew there was this coming figure who would be the true king of the Jews. So I propose they must have known something of the Old Testament Scriptures, and I'll just say furthermore, it should be acknowledged, they're the only ones in this narrative who respond appropriately to the King of the Jews. They seem to understand something of His significance and what His significance entailed for uh, themselves and indeed all humanity. As we read on, we learn that they had apparently seen a star in the sky that they somehow knew was associated with the birth of this one who would be the king of the Jews. We might wonder, how did they know this? How did they know to follow that star? Uh, and we don't know, actually. Uh, perhaps the Lord came to them in a dream as He had come uh, through the angel to Joseph. Perhaps He came to these wise men and told them to follow a particular uh, star. Uh, many of the commentators suggest that the wise men might have been instructed by a certain passage in the Old Testament 
found in Numbers 24, verse 17, which seems to connect the coming of Israel's king with the rising of a star. I'll read that text for you. Numbers 24, 17 says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, that's out of Israel, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Perhaps the wise men were familiar with this reference and had informed their searching of the stars in the sky. Again, we just don't know. Another question we might ask, what was this star? What are we to imagine in our minds? There's a description given to us. It's not illegitimate to try to imagine what this was like. And the answer is, again, we have no idea. Uh, we uh, could think of a kind of star like in the heavens. We could think of a kind of light that hovered before them. Some think that this is perhaps a comet that went across the sky, a supernova of some kind, maybe a constellation that appeared for a temporary period of time. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, but we do know that they see the star as being associated with the coming of Israel's king, of Israel's Christ. And they're following this star to lead them to the spot where the king was to be born. And they want to know when they get to Jerusalem, where is the child? We follow the star here. Where, where is he? We don't know to whom the wise men first addressed the question, but we know Herod hears about it. Maybe they went right to Herod thinking that he would be the one who would know. Or maybe they asked certain ones and it got up the ladder and then Herod finally heard these wise men were looking for this one who was to be born king of the Jews. Now who is Herod? Uh, there are multiple Herods. In Matthew's Gospel, there are multiple Herods in the New Testament. This is the one who was known as Herod the Great. He ruled for about 35 years, we think. Died roughly in about 4 B.C. Uh, so this is not the Herod. Herod's going to die by the end of this chapter. It's not the Herod who later on in Matthew's Gospel, I think in Matthew 14, uh, puts John the Baptist to death. Uh, that is a different Herod, a descendant of Herod. Herod the Great, in this passage, is greatly troubled when he hears about the wise men looking for this one who is to be born king of the Jews, as apparently is all of Jerusalem. And I don't know exactly why. I know why Herod's upset. I don't know why all of Jerusalem is upset. Perhaps Herod was known to have a particularly mercurial personality. He could sort of fly off the handle with information like this. And perhaps Jerusalem heard there's someone else claiming the throne, and uh, who knows what Herod will do. We'll see in a minute they had cause to be concerned because Herod does act out uh, in a pretty heinous way as a result of this news. But Herod the Great is greatly troubled, and Herod assembles the chief priests and scribes to learn where the Christ was to be born. Now, the chief priests, they're going to come up several times in Matthew's Gospel. The chief priests were a collection of the leading priests in Israel associated with the temple and with the ceremonial law of Israel. So this would include the high priest. At one point, Jesus' death, that's Caiaphas. But then there's other high priests as well who had sort of formally in that office. They make up the chief priests. We think as well as some other leading priests in Israel uh, as well. Uh, assembles the chief priests, and then also uh, uh, the, the scribes are assembled uh, to Herod to learn where the Christ is to be born. The scribes, don't think of them as those who sort of wrote out the law, though they did do some writing out of case law. The scribes were those who were especially entrusted with interpreting uh, the Old Testament Scriptures, uh, understanding the Scriptures, interpreting the Scriptures, and teaching the Scriptures to the people. So the chief priests and the scribes are assembled. If we were to add the elders, those groups together would form what was known as the Sanhedrin, which is kind of the religious authority uh, in Jerusalem uh, under Herod. And Herod learns in consultation with the chief priests and scribes that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. And they know this, the chief priests and the scribes, because they know their Bibles, because they know Micah 5 verse 2. That's the passage they quote. They know that Christ is to be born in the city of Bethlehem, the city of kings, 
We sing the song around Christmas time, once in royal David's city. That's the city of Bethlehem. And so they quote in verse 6 of Matthew 2, Micah 5 verse 2, it reads as follows, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So Herod, in response to this news, knowing that the child would be born in Bethlehem, Herod gathers the wise men and sends them on to Bethlehem to look for the child. He tells them to bring word back to him once they have found the child, purportedly that he too may worship him. But of course we know, we learn later in this narrative, that this wasn't Herod's purpose at all. He intends to destroy the child. So the wise men leave Herod, and the star then reappears and eventually leads them to the house where Jesus was. It sort of hovers over the house. So you wonder if it kind of descended or a light shone from a star. We don't exactly know. But it leads them to a particular house where Jesus was along with Mary, his mother. Now, again, I remind you, the nativity scenes you'll obviously around Christmas time are, are severely inaccurate. So any nativity scene that has the wise men with their gifts at the stable with the manger with all the animals around, that's not how it happened. Jesus is likely a few months old at least now. He's now found a proper house uh, some people, I think, imagine, you know, the shepherds came at maybe like 9 o'clock at night, and then the wise men came at 10, and different ones came. And visit. That's not how it happened, okay? It's been at least a few months. Mary is, uh, 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 has the child in the house, and the wise men arrive at the house after some long journey, a uh, distant journey, and they've come to see uh, the one who was to be born king of the Jews. And I just want you to imagine uh, the moment, okay? So I, I doubt the wise men you know, sent a courier ahead of them to announce their coming. It wouldn't be hard to do in those days. These wise men had traveled probably for months. They saw the star rise in the sky as far back as two years ago. That comes up later in the passage. And they've traveled. They're looking for the one who would be born king of the Jews. They want to see him for the singular purpose of worshiping him and honoring him with royal gifts. They've traveled, they've traveled, and they've, they've been looking, they've been searching, and the star then shines over a particular house in Bethlehem. Here they are, and they come to the door, they knock on the door, they enter in, and, and you know, perhaps Mary had no notion that anyone was going to visit the house that night. Here she is holding the baby. Now remember, Mary knows something of who this child is, probably not everything of who it would be, but she knows something of who her child is. Now often she might have been rocking the baby to sleep at night and praying and thinking on the prophecies that were given to her and to Joseph concerning this child. She knows that, that her son is to be the Christ not knowing all that that meant, but knowing he's to be the Christ. And so, evening perhaps like any other, she's rocking the baby and she's contemplating these things, and then appear these three Gentiles at her door. Well, see, I just made the mistake. We don't know how many, could have been a couple dozen Gentiles, okay? <laughs> I've internalized our culture's stories about this. Here, here are these wise men at the door, they knock at the door. And she might be flustered, and she, she sets the baby down, she comes to the door, and, and they're, 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 they're wearing royal garb, and they have these costly gifts, gifts that you would only give to a king. And it's like a, a royal embassy has come to the door of this little house in humble Bethlehem. And they ask if we could come inside. We've traveled from far, and we want to see the child. And they come in, and what do they do? What does the text say they do? They fall down and worship him. I don't know what you think, you know, we, we've been worshiping God this morning, we've been singing songs to him, and we've imagined him in, 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 in different, through different figures and different words and expressions. I often think of the scene in Revelation uh, 5, you know, of the Lamb and the throngs around the throne worshiping him. Uh, but we're to imagine in this setting, there's just a little baby 
I have a son, Judah, about 18 months old. It would be like him. He's sitting there, probably not even able, well, he's able to walk, but maybe Jesus could not even walk. And here are these wise men, they fall down and worship him. Now, I have nothing against raising hands in worship. Sometimes I'll raise my hands myself or even clapping to some degree, as uncomfortable as that may make some here. Uh, but, but there's no mistaking in the Bible the most usual posture uh, when in the presence of divinity is to fall down, to bow down. And that's what these wise men do. And for some reason, the text doesn't say much about Mary, but my mind goes to Mary, what she might have been thinking as these wise men from the east, they bow down, and then they shower uh, the baby, the family, with gifts. Uh, they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, there's speculation about what we're to do with those gifts, how we'd understand those gifts. The most ambitious kind of commentators will say, well, the gold was to symbolize that he would be a king. Gold was what you would give to kings that had associations with royalty. And some commentators will say that the frankincense would connote kind of the priestly office of Jesus. Uh, incense, what you would burn in the temple and that kind of thing. And so this is to indicate, to signify he's a kind of priest, uh, which is true. He is our great high priest. And then myrrh, I wonder if you know where myrrh appears again in the gospel accounts. Uh, myrrh was a precious spice that you would use in embalming uh, royal members of the royal family who had died. And so at the end of Jesus' life, he's embalmed with the use of myrrh. And some people think this gift presages uh, uh, Jesus' death. He will die as the great king, and he will be given a royal burial. I think that's all probably a little too ambitious. Uh, could be what's you know, connoted here. But at the very least, we're to understand, I think, that these are royal gifts. These are gifts worthy of a king. And so as they're bringing these gifts into them, these treasures you know, that they're bringing to the Lord, again, you imagine Jesus' parents, what they might have been thinking. But these wise men recognize this is the king. And they treat him as such by worshiping him and giving him the sacrifice of great gifts of costly value. Okay, I said I was going to spend most of our time in that first scene. They won't all be this long. Scene one, the wise men seek Jesus. The last part, I missed verse 12, is that they themselves, the wise men, are warned in a dream uh, that they need to not go back to Herod, and so they leave. Scene two, the flight to Egypt. Scene two, the flight to Egypt. After the wise men depart, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph again in a dream and instructs Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt to escape Herod, who is coming to kill the child. Joseph immediately heeds the angel's instructions, and we learn that they remain in Egypt until Herod's death. And then in verse 15, Matthew records this note. He says, we're told this was to fulfill, plerao, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. This event in Jesus' life was in some sense to fulfill what the prophet had written beforehand, out of Egypt I have called my son. And the quotation comes from Hosea 11, verse 1. You don't need to turn there. In Hosea 11, verse 1, I just want to note the context is clearly talking about the physical, national, ethnic Israel. So I'll read that verse to you. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And the passage goes on to talk about how the Lord led Israel throughout its history. We know, of course, in the Old Testament, God did call Israel out of Egypt and then sought to fulfill his covenant purposes in and through them as they were called out of Egypt. So what is Matthew doing with this passage? Why does he quote Hosea 11.1 1 here how does he establish a connection with these events in Jesus' life? Well, I can tell you I'm much more confident about what he's not doing than with what he is doing. So I don't think we're to imagine 
that Matthew's kind of cherry-picking verses from the Old Testament that have a kind of loose verbal association with things going on in Jesus' life. So, so this happens, you know, Jesus is brought down to Egypt, he's going to come out of Egypt again, and he's slipping through, well, what's something that involves a son in Egypt and being called out of Egypt? I don't think that's what Matthew's doing. I, I, I think uh, under the inspiration of God's Spirit and through the instruction of Jesus Christ himself after he, after he was risen, who showed his disciples all the things concerning himself, I think there's a more sophisticated thing uh, that is happening here. I think he genuinely believes Something of this passage in Hosea 11.1 was meant by God the Holy Spirit, whatever Hosea knew, was meant by God the Holy Spirit in some way to anticipate the events of Jesus' life. So here's my best effort at making sense of this reference. The nation of Israel, this is very clear, was often referred to in the Old Testament as God's son, repeatedly, multiple references to Israel, the nation in some sense, being regarded as God's Son, and though this gets complex, and I don't have time to explain uh, all of this this morning, I think there's warrant to believe that Israel, in some sense, typified Jesus himself, the true Son of God. I believe that Jesus, in some sense, should be regarded as the true and better Israel. Now, this idea is not emphasized in a major way in the New Testament. It's a more muted theme in the Scriptures, but I do think it's a real idea we're presented with in the Bible, that Jesus, in some sense, fulfills Israel's destiny as God's Son. They were God's Son. They failed Him. Jesus is, in some sense, going to fulfill the calling, the purpose, the destiny, the aim of Israel. What God was doing through Israel, He's going to do ultimately through Jesus the true and better son, the true and better Israel. R.T. France says that Jesus is seen as the one in whom all that Israel was and should have been has come to its climax. So to say, however we understand Hosea 11.1, the material point is this. Matthew sees Jesus as in some way reenacting something of Israel's history and fulfilling something of Israel's true purpose and destiny. And I think that's about as far as we're able to go. Let's consider now scene number three. Okay, scene one, the wise men seek Jesus. Scene two, the flight to Egypt. Scene three, Herod's massacre of the children. Herod's massacre of the children. I think here we get a window into the utter depravity and ruthlessness of Herod the Great. His descendants uh, would be equally ruthless. Uh, We see something of the lengths to which he's willing to go to protect his seat on the throne. Herod at some point realizes, apparently, that the wise men are not going to return to him, and he becomes furious, believing himself to have been tricked. And in his frantic efforts to preserve his own title as king of the Jews, you know that's what this is really about. He's the king of the Jews. This baby born in Bethlehem, I don't know him, but he's not taking my spot on the throne. And so what does he do? He slaughters all the male children in Bethlehem who were two years old or under. Now, I don't know how you read this narrative. I don't think we're to imagine that there were literally thousands of children between the ages of zero and two in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small town uh, with a small population. So it's maybe a couple of dozen children, maybe something like that. We don't know exactly. But nonetheless, this represents a heartless act of intense evil. And there's two things I think we should appreciate here. First, we should see something of Herod's deranged efforts not only to preserve his own title as king, but also his determination to reject the true king of the Jews. 
So you understand this, right? Herod genuinely believes this baby born in Bethlehem was the king of Micah 5. That's the problem. He believes this is Israel's Christ. He believes that this child is a threat to him. Because he, he believes, you know, if Micah 5, 2 is correct, the child will be born in Bethlehem, and therefore we need to extinguish the child. He's, he's rebelling against God. He's rejecting Israel's Christ. He's killing the very one who has the rightful claim to the title, King of the Jews. You know, at least those who killed the Lord at the end didn't believe Him to be the King of the Jews at all. They didn't believe him to be the Christ. They thought that he was a fake Christ. Because after all, what does Pilate do? Pilate writes, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I think that's what he writes on the cross. And what do they say? Don't write that. Right, he said he was the King of the Jews. But see, Herod, he actually believes the child's come. The fulfillment is happening. I need to stop this. So make no mistake, this is Herod against God. This is a wicked king against the true king of the Jews. But secondly, we should appreciate here that Matthew again highlights fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is the third time in Matthew 2 that he does this. Remember, he sees all of these events in Jesus' life, uh, the ones that are recorded for us, as in some way anticipating, or excuse me, fulfilling what was anticipated in the Old Testament. He doesn't see these as sort of random events taking place. Jesus is the climax of the Old Testament. He's the culmination of all these events. He's the fulfillment of all these offices and all these figures, and there were these prophecies that were foretold about the coming of the Christ and the coming of His kingdom and the coming of the new age that He's going to bring in, and He's seeing all this fulfillment from all these passages that are converging upon Jesus as the one who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so here, uh, the fulfillment comes from Jeremiah 31, 15, which is quoted in verse 18 of Matthew 2, a really heartbreaking verse. Matthew 2, verse 18, quoting Jeremiah 31, 15, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The women uh, in Bethlehem, after the slaughter of these children, crying so loud that the surrounding region could hear them. There was heard weeping and loud crying in Ramah. The tragedy of this passage is fulfilled in the events of Matthew 2, Herod's massacre of the children of Bethlehem. Okay, scene number four, the last scene of the passage. Scene one, the wise men seek Jesus. Scene two, the flight to Egypt. Scene three, Herod's massacre of the children. Scene four, the return to Nazareth. The return to Nazareth. We read in verse 19 that Herod dies. And it is then that the angel of the Lord appears again to Joseph and instructs him to bring Jesus and Mary back to the land of Israel. In verse 22, uh, we learn that Herod's son is on the throne reigning over Judea. When Joseph learns this, he is afraid. Joseph perhaps has reason to believe Archelaus presents some kind of threat to Jesus' life. That fear is confirmed through a dream that the Lord brings to him again. Joseph takes his family, being warned in a dream, he takes his family to Galilee to a city called Nazareth. And again, Matthew highlights the fulfillment of prophecy. Now the fourth time in Matthew 2. He says in verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that, was, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, that's straightforward enough, right? The prophecy would be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. The only problem uh, is there is no individual passage in the Old Testament that says this. 
So what do I mean? You could read the Old Testament all the way through, cover to cover. You could read it in the Hebrew if you would like. Uh, You are never going to see these words, he shall be called a Nazarene. So what do we do with this? What does that uh, mean? Um, Bart Ehrman's right. Scriptures are just a farce. Uh, We have a big problem here. There's no way this could be the Word of God. No, that's not, I think, how we need to respond. There are a number of explanations scholars and commentators have given. I don't think we could express with certainty that any one is exactly the right answer, but there are at least a couple that I find plausible. A couple explanations of how we understand this passage I find plausible. I want to share them with you. I think these are possible ways we can understand what's going on here. Uh, First of all, uh, this may be the easiest to explain. Some commentators do see a contextual, or excuse me, a textual link uh, with Isaiah 11, verse 1. We've quoted that passage a number of times over the last couple of months. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. They're like, how in the world does that fulfill this statement that he shall be called a Nazarene? Well, the reason is that word branch, a branch from Jesse's Root is going to come. Branch in the Hebrew is kind of the same root word as Nazareth. Okay, so same basic root word. And so some people think, well, as Isaiah 11, 1 is trying to emphasize the humble beginnings of the birth of the Savior. This branch is going to come off to the stump that's been grounded down to nothing. This branch is going to come. This Nazarite, perhaps, is going to come. Some people see a connection there, and I think it's a valid possibility. Uh, the second explanation I'll give you, I think, uh, sounds even more plausible to me personally. And this one's a little involved. You need to have your eyes on verse 23. I'll read the verse again. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. That word that, the Greek word is hoti. That word hoti can be translated either that or for. It's an ambiguous word. So so it, it could legitimately be translated as we have in most of our translations. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And if that's the translation, we might be led to think, well, there was a specific thing that the prophet said, particularly that he would be called a Nazarene, and that needs to be fulfilled. Or it could legitimately be translated, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. For he would be called a Nazarene. If this is the proper translation, then the verse does not imply that the prophets specifically foretold that Jesus would be a resident of Nazareth at some point in the Old Testament, but rather that Jesus' residency in Nazareth would fulfill something else that the prophets foretold. Uh, This fulfilled what the prophets said about the Christ, for after all, he was from Nazareth. That would be sort of the idea. And you think, well, what would that fulfill? Maybe the possibility that the Christ would be despised. Uh, So coming from Nazareth... Uh, It's not a good thing in the Jewish world. Uh, You see, Nazarene was a title of contempt. To be from Nazareth had a stigma attached to it. Uh, uh, Hence Nathaniel's words in John 1, 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You didn't want to be from Nazareth. That wasn't an illustrious place to be from. And to be a Nazarene, that was a term of contempt. So some commentators conclude it's possible uh, that what this passage is saying, you know, the, the, the prophets foretold something that is fulfilled in him being a Nazarene, and they think maybe that he would be despised, and of course he was despised. Uh, we learn in Isaiah 53 and other such passages. Regardless of which explanation you prefer, again we see, and this is the most important point, you don't have to have Nazarene figured out 
to understand what Matthew is doing in this passage. Again, we see the emphasis on Jesus being the culmination of Old Testament expectation. There was something foretold by the prophets that is being fulfilled in these events, even the very town that Jesus would be associated with throughout his life. As a summary of the narrative, we've gone through the passage again, try to see what's there. I'd like to end in what time we have left with three lessons for us. Three lessons for us from this passage. You may think, what in the world could we gather from this passage? It just seems like a random smattering of events. And I get it, Jesus fulfilled the scriptures, okay. What are we to learn for ourselves in 2022 here at Emmanuel Church in Winston-Salem? Three lessons I think we could draw from this passage. Number one, this passage reminds us that Jesus Christ is the focal point of all scriptural revelation. This passage reminds us that Jesus Christ is the focal point. He's the focus. He's the point on which all the revelation of Scripture is converging. He is the focal point of all scriptural revelation. Let me ask you a question, a very important question. Everyone needs to have a well-worked-out answer to this question. It's a question maybe you've been asked already. I would be surprised if you go through life without being asked this question. What do we have in the Bible? In the most basic sense, what do we have in the Bible? What is the Bible? Anybody could ask you that, right? Your kids could ask you that. Your students, someone could ask you in high school or college. A coworker could ask you that. A foreign exchange student. Someone could ask, what is the Bible? I was asked this question. Uh, I, I was uh, in Atlanta. My brother Zach picks me up from the airport. He's also picking up a student from China. And I get in the car, characteristic of Zach. Uh, I get in the car, and Zach goes, Hey, I forgot the, brother, the, the man's name who was in the passage seat. He said, uh, uh, this guy, hey, he's not a Christian, Alex, so we're going to tell him about Christianity on our 30-minute drive back to uh, my house. Okay. He said, what, what question would you like to ask us about Christianity? One of his questions was, what is, he didn't say, what is the Bible, but what is your text? You know, it was kind of his question. So what is the Bible? How would you answer that question? God, I have a good answer to that question. The Bible is God's gracious self-disclosure. I think that would be my favorite answer. The Bible is God's gracious self-disclosure. God's gracious revelation of himself to man. Every word is important. God. God is the one revealing himself. It is gracious. God does not need to reveal himself to us. He doesn't have to tell us about himself and his plans for us and for the world. It's God's gracious revelation revealing himself. He wants us to know something about him. The Bible's not given primarily to leave us with sort of fuzzy notions about who God is, but concrete and real notions of who he is. It's a revelation of himself from God to man. The revelation is made to us. That's what the Bible is. But it would be a different question to ask, okay, the Bible is God's gracious self-revelation, God's gracious revelation of himself to man. What does that revelation teach? What is the main thing that God is revealing in His Word? And I think the answer to that question is that the Bible principally teaches us about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. The Bible teaches us about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Now, what that means 
from a New Testament standpoint, is obvious enough. There, Christ is plainly revealed in his person and work. He is first revealed in the Gospels, like in Matthew. And the significance of his person and work is expounded in the epistles of the New Testament. But what about the Old Testament? Is that an accurate description of the Old Testament? Does the Old Testament reveal the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God? Now, this is what I think too many Christians fail to appreciate. Many Christians read the Old Testament almost like a book of fables or or moral lessons. And so the primary way in which many read the Old Testament is sort of to isolate its major stories and characters, and then they read themselves into the stories as a way to help them navigate their lives. Honestly, I think that's the way most professing Christians read the Old Testament. And so Noah's erection of the ark becomes a story about how to stay on task, even when people say you're crazy. And Joseph becomes an example of how to conduct oneself shrewdly in the workplace. And the story of Ruth and Boaz becomes a manual for dating. And David's victory over Goliath is a reminder to us not to be afraid of the Goliaths in our lives. The Old Testament in this view is a book of moral lessons and inspiring tales to help us as we make our way through the trials of life. And in this view, we are typically the heroes of the Old Testament. Uh, And the things in life, the people in life, and the circumstances in life that get us down, they are the villains of the Old Testament. Millions of Christians read the Old Testament this way, and millions of Christians are wrong. Because though there may be, and there are, certain moral lessons to learn in the Old Testament, the main purpose for which the Old Testament was given to us was not to inspire us with nice fables and stories. The Old Testament, brothers and sisters, was given to us to promise, prophesy, and prefigure the person of Jesus Christ who would be the agent of our redemption and the only appropriate object of our worship. In other words, the Old Testament, as much as the New Testament, is about the person of Jesus Christ. The theme of the Old Testament is what we saw this past summer, that the Christ is coming. God's solution for man's sin problem, namely the person of Christ, He is coming. He is anticipated. He is foretold. He is prophesied. He is prefigured in the Old Testament Scriptures. You see, Christ is the key That unlocks all the revelation of the Old Testament. I would go as far as to say this. You cannot understand the Old Testament rightly if you do not understand the person of Christ. He's the key to unlock the teaching of the Old Testament. All of the covenants point to Christ. The seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the son of David, all those ceremonies and events and sacrifices that regulated the religious life of Israel, they're all pointing to Jesus and His coming whether it's the Passover, the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, the temple, the festivals, all of it is pointing to Christ. Just read the book of Hebrews. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. All of the offices, the prophet, the priest, the king, in some way are pointing to Christ who will fulfill these offices for us ultimately. The particular figures in the Old Testament like Adam and Abraham, Melchizedek, Moses, Joshua, David, they're all pointing to Jesus. And the prophets themselves, when we read the prophets, they are telling us about the coming Messiah. They're telling us about the King of the Jews. They're telling us about the Son of Man, the suffering servant, the Lord's anointed, the one who's going to usher in the new age, the one who will bring peace on earth and final shalom, the true Son of the Father, the coming one, 
It is Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament scriptures are pointing us to this one about whom Matthew writes. You see, friends, we're meant to read our Old Testaments with Jesus Christ at the center. He's the key. He was from Matthew. Matthew understands the scriptures in various ways, and we may not be able to put together all the ways he's doing it, but he understands the scriptures are pointing us to Jesus. That's not to say every single verse is specifically about Jesus, but it is to say that he is the one to whom the Old Testament as a whole is pointing. And make no mistake, hundreds and hundreds of individual texts in some way are pointing us to him. My friend, you are reading your Old Testament wrong if you are only reading it for moral lessons. You must read your Old Testament looking for the Christ who is to come and the coming kingdom that he is going to bring. That's what Matthew is doing. And wouldn't you know, as he looks at his Old Testament scriptures, he's finding him. Not through some random chance or some word association. He's seeing legitimate ways in which the Old Testament scriptures anticipated the coming of this baby born in Bethlehem who grows up in Nazareth. I just want to say, believe in this point, I'm not saying that we have access to everything that Matthew had access to at the level of revelation. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was an apostle, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He was in that upper room in Luke 24 where Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures and told them all the things concerning himself that were written of him in the law and the prophets. He had access to things that we don't have. But I do think, and I want to commend in this lesson, that there is a general principle we're meant to learn from Matthew and the other New Testament writers. They saw Jesus Christ as the culmination the goal and the climax of the entire Old Testament Scriptures. And so we shouldn't be surprised by Matthew's repeated formula, thus it was fulfilled what was spoken of him by the prophets. Thus it was fulfilled what was spoken of him in the law. Thus it was fulfilled what Moses wrote, what David said, what Isaiah prophesied, because the whole thing, Matthew understands, is ultimately about him. Lesson number two. Lesson number two. This passage anticipates the global scope of the gospel. This passage anticipates the global scope of the gospel. Now, where on earth am I getting that from? Well, remember, Matthew is a very Jewish gospel. And part of the story that Matthew wants to tell us is about a Jewish people who rejected their own king, their own Christ, their own Messiah, starting with Herod, who will kill the Jewish Messiah if he has his way. Well, well, what about the chief priests and the scribes? Those who understand Micah 5 verse 2 and the other Old Testament scriptures. Surely they would have an interest in the Christ. Surely they would recognize him. Did you notice as the wise men come saying they're seeking the one who would be born king of the Jews and once they're told where that's going to be, no one accompanies them to the house? These scribes who know the Old Testament scriptures well go to Micah 5 too, that they would think something's happened. We're going to go with them and see. Perhaps this is the one we've been waiting for, the one we've been looking for. Friends, if Herod's response is outright hostility to the king of the Jews, over the chief priests and the scribes, it's at least indifference. Uh, they are not interested. Uh, they are not eagerly expecting this Christ who is to come, and they will not accept uh, that he has come in the way that these wise men come to find out. But who, who in this passage embraces Jesus the king. It's not Herod. Uh, it's not the chief priests 
and the scribes. Who embraces him? Pagan astrologers from Babylon. They're the first ones in this gospel to acknowledge the Christ, the King of the Jews. Is that what any Jewish reader would have expected when Israel's king came to them? He came to his own, and his own received him not. But here are pagan men from the east, these magi, these wise men, and they are the ones who first fall down and worship the Lord. Do you think Matthew's trying to make a point here? Do you think he might be trying to indicate from the very outset, this Jesus, this Christ, this Savior of the world, he will receive any who come to him. This is not a small parochial gospel, some little thing that God is doing in the corner of the world for the Jewish people only. No, he will receive pagans from Babylon. And now, I can't prove this. This might be me being a little clever, and if it is, and not exegetically borne out, leave it alone. But I find it very interesting that in Matthew 1, he's the only gospel writer who makes a point of centering his readers, their attention, on the deportation to Babylon. In the, in the genealogy. Abraham to David, 14 generations. David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. Deportation to Babylon to uh, Jesus, 14 generations. This idea of the exile in Babylon is already in their minds. And here are those coming from that region of the earth, coming to worship the Christ. I think in some ways Matthew is anticipating what he's going to leave us with at the end of his gospel. Uh, What's the climax of the gospel? It's actually not the cross, as climactic as that is. The climax is the risen Christ with all authority, the true king, announcing to his new ecclesia, his church, that he's going to build, telling them to go into all the world among all the nations and to make disciples. We have it anticipated here at the very outset of the gospel. Jesus will accept worship and devotion and allegiance from even pagans who will come to him from the east. This is going to be a global gospel. Jesus Christ will be the savior of the world. And he will receive all those, like in the song that we sang earlier in this service, the barren and waiting ones, the broken and sinning ones. He will receive all those from whatever nation, from whatever place, from whatever cultural background. You come to Jesus Christ, he will receive you. You can know him as the king. You can worship him as the Lord that he is. He will receive all who come to him. This passage anticipates a global gospel. I just looked down at my notes. I wanted to point to Isaiah 60. Uh, You can turn there, please. Please turn to Isaiah 60. It's a glorious passage. Uh, I don't think the Jews should have been surprised. And Mary, if she knew the Scriptures very well, I don't know that she should have been surprised that kings would come to worship this Christ. Probably unexpected when they showed a better door. I think if she knew the Old Testament well, she might have seen something like this coming. Listen to Isaiah 60. Follow along as I read Isaiah 60, verse 1. This is foretold of the coming Christ. Arise, shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Again, associations with the star, maybe. Verse 2, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. 
A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. So maybe the fact that you see camels in the nativity scene, maybe that's really accurate, okay? And what shall they do? They shall bring gold and frankincense. And shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Friends, the gospel is for all because this king will rule over all. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. This leads to the third and final lesson, and we'll end here. The third and final lesson for us. This passage makes clear that Jesus alone is king and that he alone is entitled to our worship and allegiance. This passage makes clear that Jesus alone is king and that he alone is entitled to our worship and allegiance. Think about that a little shorter. Jesus doesn't share the throne. He doesn't share the throne. Make no mistake, in this passage in Matthew 2, Matthew is deliberately setting up a contrast between two kings here. Two kings in this, he's setting up a contrast between two kings. Two men who claim the title king of the Jews. I should say one who claims it, one who just assumes it. The one proud and wicked and ruthless and self-centered and bloodthirsty. The other meek and mild and gracious and full of truth and righteousness and deliverance for sinners. The one clinging to the throne by carnal force and malice. The other entitled to the throne by ancient prophecy and divine right. Matthew is showing his readers and he's showing us who the real king is. And he doesn't share the throne with Herod's. He doesn't share the throne with Caesar's. He doesn't share the throne with presidents or prime ministers. He doesn't share the throne with you or with me. He is the only king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And to him alone belongs our worship. To him alone belongs our allegiance. Two kings. It's a contrast he wants to set up. But might I suggest that Matthew is hinting at another kind of contrast that's just as relevant. I think the contrast is this. On the one hand, the wise men who seek Jesus the king. And on the other, the fools that reject him. Is that stressing the text too much? Is there another contrast here? The wise men who seek him and the fools who reject him. I ask you, when they crucified Jesus, what did they say, those fools that rejected the true king? Those Jews who rejected their king. They put a crown of thorns on his head and a robe around him and they struck him in the face and they mocked him, saying, Hail, the King of the Jews. And when Pilate said to them, Would you have me crucify your king? They said, We have no king but Caesar. And as we noted earlier, when he wrote on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, they said, Don't write that. He's not my king. I don't acknowledge him as having any 
royal command over my life. He's not my king. Don't call him that. I don't want to think of him that way. I don't see him that way. Right? He said he was the king of the Jews. But he won't be my king. But these wise men, not with some transported vision of the Lord of glory in the Revelation 5 scene, but in a humble home in Bethlehem, these wise men who knew something of what the Scriptures had foretold concerning the Christ, they seek him, and they find him, and they worship him as the true king. And throughout this gospel, we will see scores of people who seek him and find him who are willing to come under His gracious reign and rule and acknowledge Him not just to be the King of the Jews, but the King of the kings and the Lord of the lords, the King over their hearts. And so He is. Paul says in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the King. And yet millions still refuse him, still reject him, will not have him as their king. They know to do so would be to topple not only Herod's throne, but their throne that they've erected in their hearts. I just ask you this morning, will you be like Herod? Do you see the true king, the rightful king? as a a threat to the throne of your life, the kingdom of your life? Or will you be like these wise men who acknowledge him as the true king, the rightful king? I don't want to be on the throne. I can't occupy the throne. Jesus alone is king of my heart and the Lord of my life, and I will bow to him with joy and with gladness, as the text says for the wise men, with exceedingly great joy. I acknowledge him to be my king. I acknowledge Him to be my Lord. I will come under the rule and reign of King Jesus, and I will submit to Him and worship Him alone as such. To Him alone belongs my allegiance. You see, our situation, friends, is very much the same. Fools still reject King Jesus, and wise men still seek Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that our King's name is Jesus. He's the Savior of His people from their sins. And that His rule is a kind and generous rule that invites even rebels who have sinned against His royal law to come to Him and to worship Him and to give their lives to Him, that He receives such. We think that it's true that for every individual here, no matter where we've come from or what we've done, we can come to know Jesus as the true king over all. We can bow down to him in repentance and faith and serve him, truth and in righteousness, that we can know his rule in our lives. Father, we know that there is coming a day where whether or not we've embraced the Lord Jesus in our lives, every knee will bow. For some, what a terrifying day that will be if that is the first time they ever bow the knee through compulsion at the sight of the risen Lamb. But what a glorious day it will be for those who in this life know Him now to be their King, who have turned from their sins, renounced their rebellion, and embraced the King who was born in Bethlehem.
May we all embrace him and own him as our Lord, as our King. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.